Aloha, you're listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Spotify Greenroom. Download the Spotify Greenroom app and find one of your Locked On rooms. Our guest today is Dean Demacus from DeanOnDraft.com. Uniquely good draft analysis. And, and I've checked out his side and it is unique and it is really good. Uh, Dean makes most of his income gambling on NCAA basketball, but he does draft analysis as a hobby. He's heavily into the analytics part uh, of the draft. And, and I brought Dean on today because I've, I've been actually looking for a guest for the past couple of months that doesn't have Cade Cunningham number one on their board. The consensus has been Cade Cunningham all year. He's been number one on, on my big board all year. But there are warts to Cade Cunningham's game, and it doesn't seem like anybody really wants to talk about those warts. But but Dean does, and he's written several articles about Cade and, and then who he thinks should be the number one pick in the draft. And so I invited Dean on today to give us an alternative take about why maybe Cade shouldn't be the consensus number one guy, or I think in his case, maybe not even in the top three. And so, Dean, I'm going to let you... I'm going to let you get started and and tell us why the case against Cade Cunningham for the number one pick in the draft. Okay, uh, so it just starts with the fact that he has a lot of good qualities. You know, he has great wing size and he's a great shooter. Um, and people and those are very valuable in the NBA. And people look at him, well, he has those qualities and he's a you know a really good wing creator. Uh, how can he not be good? But I think you have to question how good of a creator he really is because he was very inefficient for Oklahoma State. And it starts with, uh, first of all, he's not an explosive athlete and he doesn't really create that many good shots. Like he doesn't blow by anybody and he kind of just plays a lot more bully ball where he kind of like bullies in the opponent and then pulls up for whatever, you know, contested shot is available. And he, he's a good shooter and he can make, and he's big and he can make the contested shots, but you know, you got to have um, a lot of those kind of, you know, easy dunks, easy layups to be an overall efficient player, you know. And then also his handle is kind of loose and uh, he gets stripped a lot. And uh, for a guy who, who bullies so much, you would think, all right, well, he probably gets to the line a lot. But his free throw rate is it's, it's, it's OK. But for like a kind of a top three perimeter player, it's, it's really not that good. Um, and, you know, if you kind of add all these things up, it's like, well, you know, he had, he, um, and, and also his defense is kind of, eh, you know, he has, he has the capability to be a good NBA defender, defensive player, but he still isn't that good now. And you kind of add it up and it's like, well, that's a lot of flaws. And, you know, it's great that, you know, he, he can shoot, he can physically capable of defending. But if you attach that to a guy who's just going to take a lot of bad shots, miss a lot of shots and turn it over a lot. You know, that's not like a guarantee. I, I mean, he's going to be a guaranteed, like at least fit in an NBA rotation. Uh, he's going to have a role in the NBA, but is he going to be a good player who you really want uh, to get out of like a top five pick? That's not necessarily the case. One of the things that you did that I thought was really interesting is, is you went back, you went way back, even all the way to 2003. And you looked at, you looked at every guard and wing that had been drafted in the top, in the top three. And and so from 2021 all the way back to 2003 uh, with Carmelo Anthony, and, and you looked at some key factors. You looked at their age, their two-point uh, field goal percentage, their assist-to-turnover ratio, their offensive rebounding uh, percentage, or, and, and their free throw rate. And, and then you, you stacked Cade Cunningham up with all of those other prospects. And he not only did he not show well there. I think the only real comp that he had out of that whole group was OJ Mayo uh, out of USC. Uh, that's that's not good. Yeah, that was pretty eye-opening for me. But, you know, they have a lot of parallels because OJ Mayo was a guy who came into the league with a ton of hype. Um, and, and he wasn't bad as a college player, but, you know, he was kind of, people expected him to be like some crazy athlete who scored a lot of points. But I think him and Kate kind of have the commonality that they maybe physically developed a little bit uh, before their high school peers, which made it easier to look, you know, athletically dominant. And then they both, you know, they're both decent athletes, but they're not great athletes that they were supposed to be. And they had to rely on a lot of jump shots. They're both really good shooters. Uh, you know, they're both good passers. Um, but they also had, a, you know, weren't really great athletes and aren't really, you know, getting a lot of easy shots at the rim. So they both kind of had, you know, shaky two point percentages. So 
it's like, man, like OJ Mayo, you know, he was an NBA player. He wasn't terrible and Cade's bigger. So if you have a bigger OJ Mayo, that's, that's something, but again, is it something you really want to get at top five pick? Not necessarily. Who's a more flattering comp? Uh, because I, I would think that everyone is, it's like a record scratch right now to hear OJ Mayo and, and Kate Cunningham. And certainly Cade is, is, is bigger. And, and that does make a difference in the NBA, at, you know, at the wing, his size, so who might be a more flattering comp? As you looked back at the guards and wings that have been drafted uh, since 2003, was there somebody out there that you'd say, okay, if you want a better, uh, more optimistic comp for Cade Cunningham, who who comes the closest? Uh, I would definitely say Jason Tatum. Uh, you know, they're, they're pretty similar physically. Um, you know, Jason Tatum had a lot of issues with efficiency at Duke. You know, he got stripped a lot like Cade did. Um you know, he, he didn't always take the best shots. Um, and, he, you know, entering the draft, he was, you know, not even in the conversation for top two. And it was kind of, you know, maybe somewhere in the three to six range. And then Boston kind of surprised when they traded down a number three to take him. And he ended up in a good situation with good coaching. And he's a really good NBA player. So um, I think that's kind of what you're hoping for with Cade. If if Cade goes, more, trends towards Jason Tatum instead of OJ Mayo. Is is that an argument for him to be the number one pick in the draft? I mean, at, at that point, given the career that that Jason Tatum has, at that point, do you feel more comfortable that he's the guy at number one? Or do you still even think if Kate if Jason Tatum is his ceiling, that he he's still not worthy of the number one pick. Yeah, I would say that still doesn't make him number one because we don't know if he's closer to OJ Mayer or Jason Tatum. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we can't predict. And the fact that you have to risk that he could be kind of a, an OJ Mayo type. And, and I mean, Jason Tatum's a really good player, but he's still, um, you know, he still is not an MVP candidate. Maybe he's still young. Maybe he could eventually become one in time. But um, he's not like a James Harden or a Luka Doncic or a LeBron James guy who completely changes your franchise completely. He's a great piece to have. Um, and, and the other important thing is there's a lot of other really good prospects in the draft who could also be all-stars. So it's not like, you know, Kate's the only one who could be that level of good. Let's talk about people that are going to come in and hear this and say, look, okay, this is, this is ridiculous. Kate's been the guy all year. He was the top high school prospect coming out. Uh, he played during the pandemic. He played on a poor Oklahoma State team that wasn't particularly talented. That that forced him uh, to to do maybe more than than he would normally have to do if let's say he had played on Gonzaga, for example, or or Kansas or Kentucky. Uh, that that people that look at look at him and say we just didn't get to see the full Cade Cunningham as a freshman at Oklahoma State, what do you say to the people that are going to come back and say, look, you know, the numbers, okay, sure, they, they show a, they show some some real weaknesses there, but we're not seeing the real Cade Cunningham, and you've got to factor in what what he did in high school and, and, and the eye test, you know, the fact that sometimes, you know, Cade Cunningham seems like a guy who's willing to take over games. He seems ultra-confident. Um, everybody raved about him in high school. Everybody's raved about him uh, in in you know Team USA work and everything else like this. And that we're being too hard on him based off of a freshman season that was affected by the pandemic. Uh, that meant that he lost some developmental opportunities over the summer because of what was going on with the pandemic. I mean, I, I can I can sort of forecast what people are going to say back when you make the argument just sort of based off of the numbers that that you're overlooking this and and I and I know people hate this that are they're doing analytics this sort of it factor that people talk about with Cade that there's there's something about the way he conducts himself the the way that he doesn't get rattled the way that you can't speed him up um in games that the confidence the leadership that's there that isn't being reflected in these numbers yeah, I think that's definitely something you have to consider. You know, the pandemic is just something we just never had affecting any basketball season ever. And, you know, it was hard on all of us. And of course, you know, any teenage kid is not going to be a cakewalk where they just are completely the same person every day. So that's kind of something that we don't really know what what, what it means, right? Um, in terms of the team situation, uh, he, he wasn't on the ideal team situation, but 
I, I think that angle is a little bit overplayed because a lot of players are just not on good NBA teams. Um, you know, like OJ Mayo's USC offense, that wasn't a great offense. Um, you know, like James Harden, when he came to Arizona State, they were like two and 16 in the Pac-10 the year before. And they were like the number 215 offense in the NCAA. And then he was actually started as a freshman a year younger than Cade and he brought that offense to the same level as Oklahoma State. And then when he was Cade's age as a sophomore, they were the top five offense in the NCAA. And he just didn't have that much talent around him. So, you know, the, the future NBA stars, they just find a way to get it done in college, regardless of their situation. So, you know, maybe you say, um, you know, maybe it's a slightly better situation. He shoots, you know, 47% from two instead of 46%, or he averages 3.7 assists instead of 3.5 assists. So it's like, all right, great. You know, that's a little bit better. But unless he was just completely not his self because of the pandemic, which is possible. But again, if you're using a number one overall pick, do you want to actively bet on that? It's tough to say, Um, you know, so you know, he has all these possibilities that he could be better, but there, there's just nothing certain about it because even, even coming in, it seemed like he didn't stand out as the clear number one pick to me when I was watching AAU. It seemed like he was, you know, he probably was had a slight edge, but there are a few other guys in the mix that were just not very far behind. One of the things that you write, I think is interesting is that, um, and I, and I think this is, this is something that we've said with Scotty Barnes as well is that Scotty Barnes underperformed as a shooter from what we saw in high school to um, what we saw in college. Uh, on the other hand, Kate Cunningham like significantly overperformed what we saw in high school to what what kind of shooter he became in uh, in college. So uh, you you wrote if he shoots like his NCAA self and plays like his high school self, he will be very good. But if he shoots like his high school self and plays like his NCAA self, he's going to be massively disappointing. And and so I think that's sort of interesting as well. If you're going to go back and look at the and and way heavier his priors, you have to look at all of his priors and not just his good ones because there are there are some bad ones in as well. And if you're going to doubt Davian Mitchell's shooting uh, because it, it took a significant increase in one year from, from his sophomore to his junior year, then maybe you should also be critical about Cade Cunningham's shooting uh, because it also took a big leap uh, from his high school senior year to uh, his mm-hmm. freshman year at college. I, I want to just talk about one more thing um, with him because I think this would be the most shocking thing for most people that have followed Cade Cunningham and at least how Cade Cunningham is being talked about. You wrote, he has limited basketball IQ. And I think that one of the things that people are saying about Cade is that he's going to be this jumbo supersized point guard that is that his feel for the game is actually one of the biggest appealing aspects to Cade. He can take over a team. He can be a lead point guard on a team. And and, and when you wrote his limited basketball IQ, I, I thought that was really interesting. I'm, I'm sure the numbers are going to back this up here, uh, but I, I think it's probably worth addressing and, and hearing your aspect about why you referred to him as having a limited basketball IQ. Because I think if there's anything that that people are talking about Cade, um, it's it's actually that he really feels really feels the game. Yeah, and feel for the game and basketball IQ, those are some slippery things to measure. There's no way you can really be precise with that because there's so many different different layers to that right um so you know on one hand he does see the floor well he is a good passer and that tends to suggest you have good feel for the game but at the same time he's not an elite passer he has more turnovers than assists so how good is is he really in that regard and then you know he 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 makes some bad decisions he takes you know questionable shots his defensive iq is a, a work in progress and then you, you have some strange stuff like his offensive rebound percentage is just worse than any top three, uh, you know, perimeter creator taken in the last, you know, 20 years, which includes, you know, like guards like Derek Rose, John Wall, Brad Beal, John Morant, Mark Fultz, like they all, even OJ Mayo, they all offensive rebounded better than him. So it's like, well, well what's missing there? Is it, you know, a lack of effort, a lack of toughness? Does he not read the ball going off the rim that well? And no matter what, there's some level of IQ that has to be missing because Oklahoma State doesn't have like a scheme where they punt offensive rebounds for transition defense. They, they crash the glass. So, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to say he has a bad basketball IQ, uh, but I, I just think 
it's not as great as everybody thinks. And it, it, and we might look back and say, oh, actually there were some warning signals and it actually isn't that good. And it's more of like a mixed bag than, than a guy who has a great feel for the game. So Dean, putting you on the spot here on your board, where, where ideally should Kate Cunningham go in this draft? Uh, you know, number one, number number three, number five, like where do you think is, given given what you see, the right place for him to land in the 2021 NBA draft? Okay, so I would say uh, definitely not number one. Um, I would say Evan Mobley is just the obvious number one in my book. And then after that, I, I would put him in a tier with, uh, you know, a lot of other good players. This lottery has a lot of really interesting guys who are not guaranteed stars, but but could be stars. Um, so I personally would say, you know, if, if you want to put him number two, there's a totally reasonable argument for that. But I think you could also put him as low as number six, and I don't think you would be wrong. And personally, I I think his warts are, are, are a, a lot more kind of difficult to build around than a, a bunch of the other players like, you know, Jalen Suggs, Scotty Barnes, and even a few guys even later than that. So I, I might even put him in, in the five or six range, which might sound really harsh, but I mean, I, I had Andrew Wiggins seventh back in 2014 and everybody thought that was ridiculous, but you, you know, a lot of times guys seem like they're obvious stars and then, but they have, and they overlook these warts and then the warts just turn out to be a lot more significant than, than you think. So when you have, when you have a lot of other really good players in the lottery, um, I just don't think he's obviously top three. He could be fine in the top three, but he's not obviously top three. All right. He's Dean Demacus of DeanOnDraft.com. When we come back, we'll talk about the guy that Dean thinks is the obvious number one pick, Evan Mobley. You're listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Greenroom. Greenroom is the first social audio media platform for sports fans. The app is free to download, and once you're in, you can talk with fans, athletes, and insiders in real time about your favorite team or sport. Greenroom is the perfect place to start or join conversations about the league. You'll find fans just like you on Greenroom for watch parties, debates, post-game breakdowns, and of course, reacting to big news or rumors. You can even find locked-on hosts across the NBA, MLB, and NHL. Go download the free Green Room app now, currently available on all iOS devices. Be sure to create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the NFL, MLB, NHL group for the latest league updates. I know you'll find a ton of incredible rooms around your favorite teams and leagues. I can't wait to join all of you on the app. I'll be sure to let you know once the Locked On NBA Big Board Room is live. Download the Green Room app today. Green Room, changing the way we talk sports. And we are back with Dean Demacus of DeanOnDraft.com talking 2021 NBA Draft. I'm your host, Chad Ford. You can check out all of my stuff over on my website, NBABigBoard.com. Give us your email and we'll deliver into your inbox every day uh, over the next couple of weeks as we get closer to the draft. Uh, interesting articles that I'm writing, podcasts, got another mock draft coming, all sorts of great stuff coming your way. That's at www.nbabigboard.com. Dean is with us because he's written some really interesting articles about how he sees the top of this draft. We just talked about Cade Cunningham and and Dean saying he would be comfortable even with Cade Cunningham in that five to six range. But he did say that he has a guy who he actually thinks should be the consensus number one pick in the draft, and that's Evan Mobley out of USC. Evan Mobley's sat at two on our big board uh, for a while. I've argued for a while that the gap between Evan Mobley and Cade Cunningham isn't nearly as big as people think it is. I think in in Dean's mind, it actually is bigger, but in the opposite direction, that the gap is is with Evan Mobley at one and Kate Cunningham further down the list. And so, Dean, I want you to go ahead and make an argument to our listeners about why Evan Mobley should be the guy the Detroit Pistons take with the number one pick in the draft. Well, um, I would say Kate Cunningham's flaws start with inefficiency and Evan Mobley's strengths start with just incredible efficiency because for a seven-footer, he moves so well. He is so smooth and so fluid and so coordinated. Um, 
you know, you just don't see many bigs like that since, I mean, I think Joel Embiid was kind of similar, but it, it, it's very rare. And on top of moving well, he thinks the game at a very high level. He's a great passing big. I would say he's in the conversation for best passing big prospect in the past 20 years. Um, you know, he's a great defensive player. He's, he's, he's an excellent rim, de- uh, defender, uh, a rim protector. Uh, you know, he can make an open shot and he is an incredible, incredible defensively at, de- at defending the rim without fouling. He has like the lowest foul rate for any big prospect like ever, basically. I thought that was interesting, right? Like his, his personal fouls for, for 40 minutes are 2.1 and you're, you're really not getting anybody else. You know, Anthony Davis is probably the, the guy that's, that's closest, uh, Deandre Ayton, not bad. Um, and, and that, that's a big deal. One of the hardest things for big men who are good defenders to do is stay on the floor in the NBA without getting into foul trouble. And, and that looks like that's something of a Mobley's not going to have a, have an issue with. Uh, one thing that I think is really interesting that I haven't heard a lot of analysts talk about with Evan Mobley is his passing. You said that he may be the best passing big man to come out of the draft in, in, in 20 years. Talk to me about why you see Mobley as as an elite passer. I think when you were looking at the the assist percentage, the only two big men uh, that had come out in in the last you know couple of decades that that had better percentages were Andrew Bogut and Al Horford. Yeah, and he and, and Mobley actually had a better assist to turnover ratio than those guys. And, and you watch him play, and he just makes good decisions with the ball. He sees the floor well. He, he if he, there's like somebody cutting into the rim, he'll find them and he'll hit hit them for the pass. If he gets double teamed, he is going to you know not panic, not get sped up, and he's gonna you know find the open shooter and create an open three point look. And you just don't see him make bad decisions. And that might be a reason why he's getting underrated because it's easy to not celebrate a lack of mistakes. But, you know, for, for an athletic seven-footer, he just doesn't make bad decisions. That's a, you're right. I think this is maybe one of the things with, with Mobley is it's, it's a little bit harder to do the clips that show the sexy plays as opposed to a bunch of clips that you could string together with Evan Mobley that just show him doing the right thing uh, on the court, even if it's a particularly sexy thing, it's the right thing uh, to do. I, I'm curious about I'm curious about Mobley and a couple of comps that you've been hearing all year. One is Chris Bosh, and obviously they physically they look extremely similar. And as you were doing the statistical analysis, comparing him to Bosch, what did you find? Yeah, he's he like most bigs, uh Mobley was the better passer and he, he fouled less and he, he also is a little bit taller, about an inch taller, I think, and uh a little bit better of a shot blocker and rim protector. Um and, and Bosch was a, a little bit better at rebounding and that's kind of M- Mobley's one flaw is that they're both skinny, but you got to worry is maybe Mobley a little bit too skinny. Uh, can he not punish small bigs with his post-up game? Could he, you know, maybe get bullied by, you know, the MBs and DeAndre Aitons of the world. Um, but yeah, um, Bosch still wasn't that much better of a rebound, rebound founder, just a slightly better rebounder and, you know, a slightly better shooter. And uh, other than that, they're, 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 they're in a pretty similar tier. And um, if, if I was forced to pick, I'm, taking the guy who, who can pass because passing also has a big correlation with defense. So if you're, you know, an athletic seven foot guy, who can make a big um, defensive uh, impact just based on your physical tools. And you also ha- can think that get the game at a high level that just creates a really high defensive upside. Even if, if even if he isn't really that strong, and can maybe get pushed around by a, a few select players. Another point that, that you make in your article that I think is interesting is we we've talked a lot about Cade Cunningham supporting cast and, and how it was weak, and maybe you know some of the mistakes that you're seeing from Cade Cunningham actually have more to do with his teammates and the fact that defenses could key on him every night. But you make the argument that that Evan Mobley's supporting cast was worse than Cade Cunningham, yet Evan Mobley saw more success and didn't have all the weaknesses and flaws that that we saw with Cade Cunningham. Yeah, Evan Mobley had a, had a really weak supporting cast, uh, in my opinion, entering the season because you know his brother was you know, decent as a freshman, nowhere near his talent level though. And then 
uh, you know, guard play is so important to win in the NCAA because if you don't have guys who can handle and, and pass and, and shoot and create shots and get to the rim, your offense is just going to have a bad time. And, and they were most of their uh, perimeter players were guys who were really not even that good uh, creating on the perimeter for mid-major teams last year. So now, you know, you figure they trans most mid-major players, they really struggle with, they, you know, take a little dip at when they transfer to high major. So, you know, it looked like, you know, USC just might have a really bad offense, even if, you know, they have two pretty good bigs, maybe their defense is good, but it turned out that they had the number 14 offense in NCAA, which was, you know, Oklahoma state had like the number 60 something offense. And uh, I think his offensive sporting pass was definitely weaker than Cade's. And they also had the number six defense, which is, you know, Andy Enfield's best defense too, because, you know, Evan Mobley is just such a high IQ, high IQ defensive player. And, uh, you know, compared to computer models, they just are one of the biggest overperformers of the season, um, just massively just crushed expectations. One of, one of the arguments that, that you make, and I've heard some other general managers make, is, you know, look, one of the things you want to look at is that that overall impact. Does this guy make everybody better on your team? And I think this is one of the arguments that you're making is that that's that's clear from the numbers that putting Evan Mobley on this USC team lifted lifted all the boats, uh, right? It, it it helped everybody and, and, and made them better where that's that's more questionable with Cade Cunningham. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, because you have the like like their their top two um, guys in minutes played outside of um, the Mobley brothers were Drew Peterson and, and Tajidi, who saw their both of their stats got better playing at a high major instead of instead of mid major, and you know most most of the time it goes the other way where the guys mid major they face you know bigger, stronger, better defenses, and, and they, they, they 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 decline, but. Uh, you know, and I'm sure those guys are working on their games and then they made some improvements, but, you know, you, I think you got to give Mobley and, and his brother Isaiah credit for, for being, you know, very intelligent passing bigs who, who made life easier on the guards who really are not naturally meant to carry a high major offense. Well, let's talk about Mobley's warts for a minute. Uh, he's not a perfect prospect. Uh, what two of the warts you talked about, and then I want to talk about one that, that, that you didn't really address in your column He's extremely thin. He's got a very thin frame, and and he was not anything close to an elite rebounder uh, at, at, for a player his size. How much does that impact his NBA success? It's hard to say. Um, it's definitely something to be concerned about. Um, you know, less so because t- teams are going small more often. But you know, as I mentioned, he still is doesn't really have the post up game to punish small lineups and. Uh, you know, if he has to play center against, you know, Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, um, DeAndre Ayton, you have to worry if he, he's just going to get bullied. Um, and you have a prospect like Jaron Jackson Jr. I was really high on Jaron Jackson Jr., but he's just kind of struggled to handle the physical aspect of the NBA. He's struggled on the glass. And you have to at least worry a little bit about that for Mobley. But then on the other hand, you have so many skinny bigs who are great, like Chris, Chris Bosch is very skinny, Hall of Famer, Kevin Garnett very skinny. He's one of the top 10 players in NBA history. So, um, you, you know, it, it could be a flaw, but there have just been so many skinny guys who, who have thrived before and been excellent defensive players. It's, it's something to worry about a little bit, but it's not something to completely, you know, just tank his draft stock. The other thing I want to bring up is, is something that, that John Hollinger has raised uh, throughout the years, which is that with the de-emphasis of, of NBA bigs, that some positions are just inherently more valuable right now in the NBA and you get more value uh, getting a three and D type wing uh, than you do with an NBA big man right now. And so if, if you're taking a high value number one pick, it's also important to consider position, not necessarily team need, but just where are you getting your highest value? Those wings seem to be in demand right now. They're the hardest type of player to get. And, and so I think one of John's arguments has been you don't draft the big guy, number one, because there's less positional value there uh, than there is taking the wing. And I'm, I'm curious what you, what you think about that argument. I, I see where people are coming from, but I, it can get a little bit overplayed because you still need superstar players to win. That's the most important thing. You, you know, like um, 
And if you're draft, if I can see that argument to some extent, because a lot of teams want to play three wings and only one big. So there's only one versus three. You want to put more uh, value on the wings. It makes sense. But, you you know, at what cost? If you're just drafting a a guy like Andrew Wiggins over Joel Embiid, like you're not going to be happy that you took the wing because Andrew Wiggins is the guy who's not helping you win and Joel Embiid, the, the best player on a contending team. So, to, to me, the first thing in the draft is you want to draft a future superstar. And Mobley even has some wing abilities. Like you could maybe use him as a four because he can he can handle a little, he can pass, he can make an open shot, he's athletic. Maybe he can switch on to smaller players. So I wouldn't, you know, necessarily just group him in as is you know a big stiff that you just put in the middle of the defense like Roy Hibbert. You know, he's he's a pretty versatile guy. Uh, I, I had one scout that I really trust who argued that if if he were to draft Evan Mobley, he would absolutely play him not as a five, but as a as a three four hybrid uh, in the in 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 the league. And he thinks that that Mobley has the ball handling ability. He thinks the sh- shot's going to come around. Uh, you know, on the offensive end, uh, he thinks the passing is there. Uh, and and then def- defensively, he thinks he could be a monster. Uh, with you know his size and length, uh, guarding guarding threes and fours at the next level, and he actually thinks that's the appropriate way to think about Mobley and use him. And he's, by the way, one of the very few guys that I talked to who has Mobley number one on his board uh, because of that. And he thinks that we're miscasting Mobley and where his strengths really lie as a player, and 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 considering him a five instead of considering him like a three four. Yeah, and I, I would. I think that's a really good point, you, you know, and um, that's one of the things that happens when you draft well-rounded players is you just find different ways for them to succeed than what you would, than what you would expect. So I think that's a really good argument. Um, you know, he might be able to be a, just a really, really tall wing who's super versatile and can do all the perimeter things. All right. So Dean's got Evan Mobley as his clear number one. I don't think Pistons fans will want to hear that. They seem to freak out every time anybody talks about them not taking Cade Cunningham number one. But I think this is this is this is what's awesome about the draft is be able to look at all this stuff, debate it, um, think about you know alternatives to the consensus argument. I think it's really important. I think teams make mistakes when they don't um, hear these types of arguments. So Dean, I really appreciate you making those arguments. When we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of other players that Dean has higher than the consensus and a couple of players that he has lower than the consensus. You're listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. Did you know that Built Bar has nine delicious flavors plus the occasional limited time flavor? When you talk to a Built Bar fan, they're definitely passionate about their faves. If you don't know the Built Bar flavors, well, you're missing out. There's coconut, coconut almond, cherry, raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, double chocolate, salted caramel. So there's something for everyone. My personal favorite is the coconut. I, it tastes like a Mounds bar. It's, it's, it's extremely delicious. It tastes like a candy bar. But here's the, the crazy thing. It's, it's actually really healthy for you. Uh, there's 17 grams of protein, only 130 calories, only 4 grams of sugar, only 4 grams of net carbs. Order today. Get that raspberry, mint brownie, that double chocolate, that salted caramel, whatever you like. Go to BuiltBar.com. Use promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your first order. Use promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. And we are back talking 2021 NBA draft with Dean Demacus of DeanOnDraft.com. You can go over to his website and see he's written some really interesting in-depth articles breaking down the prospects for the 2021 NBA draft. He makes the argument against Cade Cunningham, the argument for Evan Mobley as the number one pick in the draft. He's also talking about some of the other top prospects, guys that he has higher than the consensus, lower than the consensus. We're going to talk about that. You can also head over to my website at nbabigboard.com. Uh, you can get, uh, if you give us your email, you can get a, a subscription service where we'll have my article come into your inbox every day. You can uh, check out our big boards or mock drafts. I just wrote an article about my biggest draft bust, uh, biggest mistakes that I've made in the draft over the past 20 years, headlined by Darko Milicic. And you can check all of that out over at nbabigboard.com. So Dean, I want to talk about a couple of guys that you have 
higher than the consensus. And then we'll talk about a couple of guys that you have lower than the consensus. And I want to start with a guy that has been really tough for me personally. Uh, I, I I see the analytics argument. Uh, sometimes when I'm watching him play, I'm not exactly sure how the game is going to trans- translate. Alpernin Sengun uh, out of Turkey, 18-year-old MVP of the Turkish League, which is a really, really big deal. I think the analytics as far as his production in Turkey at his age are off the charts. Uh, In fact, I've heard some people say if you're just purely going on analytics, uh, Singun is the number one pick uh, in the draft. But but questions about how his style of play is going to translate to the next level in the NBA. Uh, Where do you have Singun on your board and what do you think about his NBA prospects? Well, I think one of the the problems with the Sangoon critique is people just kind of look at him as a guy who's just, you know, 20 and 10, he's going to bully inside and that's all there is to it, like a Julia Lopefer. But then you look at his overall stats and he does so much more than that. I mean, first of all, he makes almost 80% of his free throws at age 18 and he, he doesn't take many threes because, you know, he's so good in the post that he, he his coach wants him to play in the post. It's kind of like Carl Anthony Towns at Kentucky. And now in the NBA, Carl Anthony Towns takes threes and he makes what, almost 40% of them, right? So he could develop into a very good three-point shooter in the NBA. Um, he's also a really good passer. He has a better assist to turnover ratio than Kate Cunningham and almost as high of assist rate as Kate Cunningham. He has a better steal rate than Kate Cunningham too. Um, more blocks than Kai Jones. So every, everybody's kind of assuming that he's just kind of this slow lug who's just going to get 20 and 10 and be worthless ever otherwise. And it's like, well, he can handle a little bit. He can pass. He has shades of a point forward. He can shoot. Um, he, um, and also his defense might not be that bad. Um, you know, he makes some plays on defense and whenever somebody has a steal rate as high as he does, um, you know, Scott's made this mistake with Draymond Green, where he's like, he's too small. He's too slow. He's not going to defend anybody. He needs to to the second round. He ends up winning defensive player of the year. And if you really watch the film on Sangoon, he has some pretty good moments uh, defending defending guards. You know, uh, in the in the Turkish League playoffs, he uh, had a, like a three possessions in a row where where you know he forced two tough shots for Vasilhe Micic, who is good enough to play in the NBA, and Shane Larkin, who was you know a decent NBA bench player, and uh, you know was lightning quick and was the Turkish League MVP a couple of years ago, and. You know, they were trying to pick on him in twitches, but they just, they just couldn't get past them. And I mean, other times they do get past him, but if the, the idea is, is that he can't defend because you just switch guards on him in the playoffs and he gets torched. Well, it doesn't seem like that's necessarily the case because he can already hang with these guys who are like kind of, you know, low end NBA players at age 18. So if you kind of look at it all, it's like, man, if this guy can shoot and handle and pass and defend and defend multiple positions and also, by the way, he happens to be automatic near the rim and a beast on the glass and have awesome hands and he's going to be a great pick and roll finisher. It's like, well, are, are we sure that this guy's really, you know, not just really a well-rounded NBA star as opposed to an archaic mold? So um, it's difficult to know. I don't know exactly where I want to rank him because there are so many good guys, but I, I'm going to have him somewhere in the top five. And I, I think I think that he's he's that guy, right? Like that. There's so many signals that point to, okay, this guy's going to be really good. And, and also that level of production in Europe, uh, you know, I've had, you know, several people that have like really crunched the numbers to say it's, it's, it's almost unheard of that a prospect that is producing that highly in Europe is going to be a bust in the NBA. Like that his, his floor is going to be extremely high. Uh, because just that level of production, there's just not a lot of evidence that players that have produced at that level at that age are are, are not going to have a productive role in the NBA. And so, really, we, we're just arguing about ceilings here um, with Singun, not 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 floors. Who do you think is the best comp for Singun uh, in the NBA? I, you go through several. You go through Jokic, but he he's he's quite a bit smaller than Jokic, and it's pretty tough to compare a guy to a guy who's uh, M- MVP. You you talk about Sabonis. Uh, you talk about uh, Kevin Love. Uh, who do you think uh, uh, John Hollinger's uh, referred to Kyle Anderson uh, before as a, as a potential comp? Um, who do you think is the best comp in your mind for what we should expect from Singun? Yeah, it's, it's tough to find a, a, a perfect comp because he's just such an outlier at, at everything. Uh, I would say the closest is probably Kevin Love, but he might be Kevin Love. Kevin Love was 
pretty bad on defense. So he might be Kevin Love with good defense. And if he's Kevin Love with good defense, that's just an awesome NBA player. All right, let's talk about another guy that I am much more bullish on than than most people. Uh, you may even be more than me, uh, which is Scotty Barnes uh, out, of, out of Florida State, who uh, I, I've made the argument if, if you take you know, obviously the shooting matters and it's, it's a big question mark for him. But if you look at all this sort of other comps and who do you want to be that, that, you know, big ball handling, uh, wing in, in many ways, Scotty Barnes grades out better, uh, than Cade Cunningham with the, as, as you said, the possible exception, certainly the exception of him not being a great shooter. And so I, I'm curious what you see out of Scotty Barnes and where you would have, have him. Yeah, Scotty Barnes is, uh, he's also a tough guy to, to exactly rank because it's just such, uh, the, sh- the shooting is going to make or break him so much. And if he's not that good of a shooter, he can still be, he can still be a, a good player. You know, Ben Simmons can't shoot at all and he, he's a good player, but it still is, there's a lot of awkwardness, a lot of friction building around him uh, and building around him and stuff like that. But the, what really stands out to me is that he has the same wingspan and is an inch taller than Kawhi Leonard. But he had a better assist to turnover ratio as a college freshman than Steve Nash did in four years playing for a mid-major Santa Clara. So you don't get to see players like that that often where he can handle. Um, he, he's not like a super flashy passer, but he, he plays under control. He doesn't make bad decisions. Um, he doesn't force the issue. He, when he gets to the, he can get to the rim at times. And when he does, he's like, it's so easy for him to finish because he has such a ridiculous reach. So um He's kind of like almost like the inverse of Kate Cunningham or Kate Cunningham has the, the great shot. But other than that, everything's kind of a little bit dicey. Scotty Barnes doesn't have the, the shooting, but everything else is just so solid. And, you know, I see him as, you know, again, definitely a top five guy, maybe top three. Um, you know, there's a lot of good guys in that tier, but um, if his shooting comes around, you're just going to be really happy you drafted him. That seems to be the, you know, the question as well. And, and then you know, some people look and say, yeah, but that's really scary. Look at Ben Simmons, uh, whose sh- shooting not only didn't come around, in some ways it, it kind of regressed uh, in, in Philadelphia, and look how he was almost unplayable uh, in the playoffs. Uh, but my argument back on that is you know, Ben Simmons in some ways is an outlier that way. They, for a lot of prospects, their shot does get better. Scotty Barnes actually kind of underperformed at Florida State compared to what we saw uh, in, in high school. And, and he had a sort of a unique role coming off the bench at Florida State on a little bit more of a veteran team about what he was asked to do and not asked to do. My bigger question is, is he going to be aggressive enough, you know, looking for his shot, um, you know, pushing pushing his own offense and not just sort of distributing and creating for others. There was times when it you wanted him to attack more at Florida State than he seemed willing to attack. And is that a personality thing uh, with him? Or was that just, again, the sort of role he was asked to play at Florida State? That that seems to be the the one question mark that that, that I have uh, about about Scotty Barnes. Will he score enough? Uh, in in the NBA, uh, not just the shooting, but will he just overall be scoring enough to m- make him worth the top four? That's kind of why I have him at number four um, pick in the draft. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's more of a feature than a bug because uh, he still was scoring at, at a decent clip. I mean, he had a low points per game in part because he's coming off the bench. But he 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 had a lot of great highlights where he would get to the rim and create an easy shot and. Um, you know, I think you kind of want a guy who can handle and make the and just make the right decision, whether it's passing to an open shooter or hitting the 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 big on the pick and roll, or you know, finding an opening in the defense and um, you know, getting an easy bucket. So it, it's like whatever decision he made with the ball, it tended to work out well for the offense. And I think that's the priority over making sure the guy scores you know twenty points a game. Um, and um, I would say he probably even created um, a little bit more offense inside the arc than, than Kate Cunningham. And the difference is, is that he just doesn't have the outside shooting. So, uh, you know, it, it's definitely going to be awkward if the shot doesn't come, which is the risk you're taking, which is scary. And, you know, the top three, top four. But if the shot comes around and he's going to be able to shoot over anybody, he can handle and he can probably he's going to be able to shoot off the dribble, too. Um, I think that kind of gives him the missing element of the offensive game that kind of rounds him out and really makes him a complete, you know, overall offensive stud. 
I think the other guy that you have, which I think is more consensus in that that top group, is is Jalen Suggs. Is that right? That's the other guy, kind of at the top of the draft that you're that you're pretty high on. Yeah, Suggs Suggs is just a good basketball player. He's a good basketball IQ. Um, I think you have to worry a little bit about um, exactly how skilled he is because he wasn't asked to run the offense full time at Gonzaga. Um, so it's like, is he kind of more, you know, a Marcus Smart role player, or is he maybe? you know, Drew Holiday, but with a better first step. And Drew Holiday is a really good player as he is. And if he has a better first step and can get to the rim a little bit more, that's that's really nice. Let's talk about a guy that you're not as high on, a guy that the Pistons have taken a look at at number one. A lot of commentators have the Rockets actually selecting him at number two. Uh, I don't think you have him in your top five, and that's uh, the G League's Jalen Green. Uh, what are your concerns about Green as a top five prospect in, in this draft? Yeah, I just think Green is a little too one-dimensional. Now, I get why people like him. He's 99th percentile athleticism. And when he has a good scoring play, it looks incredible. He is His highlight reel is probably going to be the best highlight reel of anybody in the draft. And um, it's very easy to be attracted to that. And um, his shooting, um, he's at least a decent shooter. He can make an open shot. Um, we'll see, we'll see uh, whether he, uh, he's just a good shooter, a decent shooter in the long run. Um, but outside of scoring, he just doesn't offer enough. And first of all, he's really small for a shooting guard. We don't have his exact dimensions, but he's, I don't know, maybe six, five and very skinny. And he just gets beat on defense so much. And I know he's playing fringe NBA players in the G league instead of college players, but this might sound ridiculous. I thought Alper and Shangun's like perimeter defense and containing penetration looks better than Jalen Green's because it just seems like he just plays Matador nonstop. And uh, so right off the bat, you have to worry that whatever he does on offense, he's just going to give it right back on defense. And then the other problem is, is that the, the best offensive players in the NBA who really give you that crazy offensive impact, like Steph Curry, James Harden, they're really great passers too. Um, because you know, that's just as important as scoring. So he's not a terrible passer. I mean, he can find the open man. He makes some decent passes from time to time, but he's definitely, definitely, definitely a score for his guard. So just being that small without the passing, without the defense, it's, it's, it's hard to see how he's really gives you that like MVP upside and he can have a lot of bad outcomes too. Um, and I, I, I think he could be like a Devin Booker or Zach Levine, which is great. You know, those are all-star players, right? But I, I don't see that like top 10 kind of guy, a guy who challenges for MVP. And it's also Zach Levine and, and Devin Booker are also kind of not the easiest to build around. You know, Devin Booker is in the NBA finals because he has an actual MVP candidate on his team in Chris Paul. He's not the number one guy. He's the number two. Let's uh, talk about another guy that that you're not as high on Davian Mitchell. And I think there is definitely more of a polarizing nature to Davian Mitchell. Not everybody's on board with him going as high as, as you know, seven of the warriors where we have him projected uh, to go uh, right now. Uh, you're much more bearish uh, on Davian Mitchell uh, than mo- most. Uh, you said he has the reddest flag uh, of the top prospects in the draft. What, what's your concern with Davian Mitchell? Well, first of all, when you're 6-1, you need to be good at offense. So he has a great defensive reputation, but the 6-1 players are never the best defensive players in the league. And his offense is uh, it's just not that good for a 22-year-old. He just doesn't really have the best handle. He really struggles to – he's quick, but he just doesn't look comfortable off the dribble even at age 22. And that's kind of the point where it's like, yeah, he has a great work ethic, but he's just too far behind to, to really do much. And um, he made like, I don't know, like 44, 45% from three this year, which is a big improvement over his like low thirties last year, but he still only shot like 65% from free throws. So it, yeah, his shot probably improved, but if most of that is just luck and you have a guy who can't really do much off the dribble and he can't really shoot or is just an okay or average shooter. And um, he has to rely on his defense. And then you have to worry that his defense isn't even that good because he, he's great at pressuring the ball, but that's just one aspect of defense. And and he, he doesn't rebound at all. He doesn't play physical. So he can still maybe get bullied and pushed around by other NBA guards, which is, yeah, you can stay in front of them, but those guys can just, you know, bulldoze over him and get to the hoop anyway. That takes away a lot too. So, you know, he just has too many flaws for an older guy. And it just seems like, 
yeah, he's a great work ethic, but just the baseline talent isn't there for a guy to be a starting caliber NBA player. I mean, maybe he'd be like a fringe starter or like a decent backup, but I just don't see how you're getting a solid starter out of him ever. So where where are you comfortable with, with Mitchell being drafted? Uh, you know, I've had some teams say, look, if it's 17 instead of seven, then they start to get more comfortable. Uh, is, is are you there or are you are you even lower than that on on Mitchell? I wouldn't even take him in round one because I, I just looked for all, all of the, the the players who had his offensive struggles at age twenty one and twenty two, and there just really aren't any good examples. And I think kind of the closest comparisons are Chris Duhon and Earl Watson, who were guys who were taken in round two. You know, they were kind of you know solid backups or low end starters, and you know I think that's what you're hoping for with, with Davion Mitchell. And so if those guys are round two, I think. Probably makes sense to take Davion Mitchell in round two, which might sound harsh, but I mean, before this season, he wasn't even like a top hundred prospect. Is is there any argument to make here with Mitchell that the fact that there was a three headed, experienced backcourt with Masio Teague and and Jared Butler uh, that that devalued some of the impact that that Mitchell could have on offense? That you know he wasn't expected. Uh, to be the guy to go out and create, they had three weapons. They they used all of them, you know, fairly equally. And and in fact, really, he was probably the third, you know, scoring weapon uh, on Baylor. That that if he had been on a team that didn't have this high level of guards, three elite guards, if he had played on, let's say USC, uh, you know, for example, that this would this would look different for him. I don't think so because he just doesn't look natural off the dribble and it. it if you just aren't a natural ball handler and I mean, he still can create just based on, you know, a quick first step, but I think, and also in certain ways that makes life easier because he's not meant to really carry an offense and having two other guys who can really handle and shoot. Well, that's going to make life easier for him in certain ways too. So um, in some ways, I think it was kind of the ideal situation for him. All right. He's Dean Demacus at DeanOnDraft.com. You can go over there and read uh, all of his analysis. Uh, one of the things I love about Dean is he's not afraid to go after the consensus. Uh, all of his arguments are well-reasoned. He's got statistical proof to, to back up his point of view. Uh, I really enjoyed checking out his website. You should check it out, too, at DeanOnDraft.com. Dean, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chad. I had a great time. Want to alert our listeners that next week, the Ultimate Mock Draft 2021 presented by Locked On and Odyssey is featuring analysis from me, as well as Odyssey experts Brian Scalabrini and former general manager Ryan McDonough of the Suns. Our Locked On NBA local experts will be making selections and trades for your favorite basketball teams throughout this week-long special event. Search the Ultimate Mock Draft 2021 on the new Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Odyssey is your audio home for all the sports, podcast, music, and news that matters to you. That's Odyssey, A-U-D-A-C-Y. When we come back, it will be Ryan Rossillo uh, of The Ringer uh, coming back, and we're going to be talking uh, about his views of the top picks in the 2021 NBA Draft on Friday. You've been listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. Aloha. Aloha. 